Back in the 70s, board games and improv theater had a baby, and it was called the role-playing game. These games allowed a generation of kids to live out their dreams of slaying dragons and saving kingdoms, all while sitting in their bedrooms and basements. Today, gaming has moved into the cultural mainstream, and role-playing games are back with a vengeance. Join us now as five of these former kids come out of the basement and onto the internet to experience adventure, mystery, and obscure pop culture references. It's time for Roll for Combat. Hey everyone, welcome to Roll for Combat. I'm your GM and host, Stephen Glicker, and in this special episode, I have Paizo developer Eleanor Farron. She has developed some of the most iconic Starfinder Society adventures to date. Of course, she created The Commencement, which is Starfinder Society 1-01, something that probably every single person has ever played. She's also responsible for creating Strawberry Machine Cake and Sugar Star Heart Love, which of course needs no introduction. And she just released the brand new Against the Aeon Throw adventure, Escape from the Prison Moon. So I got her on the show. I believe this is her first interview ever. So we talked all about all of the work she did, how she wrote to commencement, how she designed the faction leaders, which is pretty cool, how Sugar Star Heart Love started out as almost like a little joke and sort of exploded and turned into this big old thing, her influences, and we talk about cuttlefish. That's right, cuttlefish. Anyhow, sit back, relax, and listen to our interview. Hey everyone, this is Steven Glicker from Roll for Combat, and I'm talking to Eleanor Farron, a developer at Paizo, and we're going to be talking about a whole bunch of things. She just came out with Escape from the Prison Moon, which is the next book in the Starfinder adventure path against the Aeon Throne. So how are you doing, Eleanor? I'm doing great. Uh, how about you? I am doing great as well. We are actually just celebrating our one-year anniversary, so you are going to be our first interview on C on year two of Roll for Combat podcast. <laughs> very so, nice. <laughs> yes. So, so welcome to year two. So, the very first thing I wanted to start off with before we jump into Against the Aeon Throne and Escape from the Prison Moon is you are relatively new at Paizo. Is that correct? Correct. And you are a developer for which line? Do you work on both? Because you've been doing a lot of Starfinder stuff recently. Uh, my Starfinder stuff is mostly um, on the side. My actual job is development on the final first edition Pathfinder player companions and campaign setting books, and moving into uh, well, 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 moving into second edition. We'll see. <laughs> and you obviously just recently joined Paizo. I think this year, correct? Correct. I uh, started at the near the end of January of this year. And how's that been? Has it been everything you imagined and more? Uh, well, it's about, um, it's, it's about what I expected in some ways and definitely interesting and new in other ways. Obviously you have to get used to how things are done behind the scenes at Paizo as opposed to just seeing the final products. Um, it is, it is work. I knew it would be work going in, but uh, overall I've really enjoyed uh, working here. I do always find it interesting when people play games and then they end up doing game design on the side or like, you know, it's freelance and then they do it full time and it actually becomes a job. And sometimes that is a nice transition. And sometimes they realize, oh, man, I'm doing what I used to do for fun as a full time job. And now it's not fun anymore. <laughs> well, I, I'm still new, so I've avoided that kind of uh, burnout. Although uh, ask me in five years and maybe I'll have a different answer for you. But uh, yeah, I, I definitely enjoy working on the games here, um, in part because I think it's hard to actually play games. You know, I think every group knows the pain of trying to get four to five people together at the same time every week uh, without somebody canceling due to real life. So uh, it, it's nice to have a steady source of gaming at the t moment. <laughs> 
Yes, obviously, you always have someone to game with. I imagine everyone's always gaming all the time. If anything, you have too many games. Yeah. Uh, well, actually, there's sort of a joke at Pfizer that nobody has time to play games when you're working on games. But uh, there are some office games that go along. So far, I'm not in any of them quite yet. So I mostly get my gaming through writing and developing. So before we get into Escape from the Prison Moon, I wanted to talk about two other Starfinder Society adventures that you created, which are probably two of the most popular ones. One of them because it was the very first adventure, and the second one just because it's popular. So you wrote The Commencement, which is Adventure 1-01, which is the one that pretty much every single person who ever plays Starfinder Society is going to play. And you were responsible for shaping the hearts and minds of every single person who plays Starfinder forever. How, how did that come about? Uh, you you might have to ask Thurston Hillman about that because he's the one that approached me and said, do you want to write Starfinder 01? And I said, of course I do, because I, that's really that's really quite an honor. I was very excited to be on that project. Um, I was very excited for the reasons you just said, um, just kicking off an entire new organized campaign and maybe even setting the tone for the entire uh, system to a lot of people. Um, that, that was really quite an honor. So tell me about how you developed it, because that must have been, well, first of all, the rules probably weren't completely done. This was the very first one. You had nothing to go against. Like, how, how was it even developed or what was your system in creating this? Um, so I did, I was lucky enough to have like the draft of the final rule book. They sent that to me because obviously it was pretty hard to write an adventure for a game system you don't have the rules for. Um, they also sent me uh, the draft for creating monsters that showed up later in the Alien Archive book. Uh, so I knew how to make the foes that the PCs would be fighting. And uh, the outline contained uh, the overall you know, setting the scene, the information uh, with the Scoured Stars invasion uh, just happening in the background, and the idea that the Starfinder Society's new recruits were just coming in and to, to set the scene for all of that. And they included the four faction heads that we met in the commencement, um, basically who they were and what their faction was about. And like a brief background on each one of these people, uh, how they'd reacted to the Scoured Stars, most importantly. So when I, uh, I, I basically was told to write like four mini adventures for, for each of these people. Uh, one of them was set, uh, Zigvix or Ziggy as it were, uh, was supposed to have the players go in and fight the creature in the warehouse. So that one was set and the others were open. So I sat down and I looked at uh, the personalities of these faction heads, uh, what they were like, what they were most interested in, and the uh, overall goal of their faction and came up with three other uh, sort of mini adventures that tied into both of those so that uh, everyone going in could have a taste of uh, what could be expected if they decided to join that faction. So that's uh, like, for example, the uh, these shoot. I'm I'm blanking on uh, Fitch's faction. Fitch is the Wayfinders. Yeah, I was thinking the uh, Wayfinders. No, that's Pathfinder. That can't be right. Um, but so the Wayfinders, they're all about you know the actual exploring, you know, five year journey to go boldly where no one has gone before, new and exciting uh, races, and all of that sort of thing. And that's why their mission was this sort of impromptu first contact scenario, but you're not sure what it is going in. Uh, so the, the entire idea there is exploring the unknown. You go into this situation, you don't know what is causing the issue, and you encounter something that uh, you don't recognize, Fitch doesn't recognize, and you have to deal with that thing, which may or, not, may or may not be freaking out just as much as you are, or maybe it's just, you know harmlessly poking around at things and doesn't realize the damage it's done. And because none of you have any knowledge of this thing, you don't know its language, you have to sort of improvise. Uh, and I, I felt like that sort of summed up the core tenets of the Wayfinders uh, to deal with the situation 
And in fact, the only way you fail that situation is if you just shoot the thing dead. Uh, so, so that's just sort of like giving you a taste of what you can expect if you get into the wayfinders. And that's uh, sort of how it is for all the rest of the groups. So, by the way, who came up with Fitch, like having that large family and having all the kids around all the time? Yeah. Uh, it's not just Fitch's family. It's it's basically all the, the kids, um, including Fitch's. But because of the Scoured Stars incident, I, I wanted to make sure that the Scoured Stars incident had little impacts throughout the entire adventure. Some of them were more obvious than others. Some of them I think people might have interpreted in different ways. Like, for example... Uh, Ziggy is trying to give a CD to Historia 7, which I think most people assumed was romantic, um, but it wasn't really necessarily when I wrote it. It was just uh, Ziggy trying to cheer up a friend who had lost someone dear to her in the Scoured Stars and didn't really know how to, and so it was just sort of defaulting to, I like this thing, she'll like this thing, it makes me happy, so maybe it'll make her happy. Um, and in the case of Fitch's family and the rest of the kids on the station, uh, as the PCs encounter those two children down in the hold, uh, it's because a whole lot of Starfinders are missing. In fact, it's stated in the adventure that those two children, their mother is missing in the Scoured Stars, and their father doesn't have any choice but to bring them into work with him. So, so that's just one of the ways that it was showing that, you know, people are trying to pick up and move on from the disaster, but it's still heavily impacting everyone in the uh, Starfinder Society. So, of course, we have to mention Strawberry Machine Cake. Because everyone loves Strawberry Machine Cake. It became such a big deal and even has its own adventure, which we'll talk about in a sec. So did you come up with that? Or was that like, where did that come from? I did. Uh, I just, I just uh, was making Ziggy. And both Thirsty and I agreed that, that Ziggy is meant to be just really charming. Um, not the sort of grizzled veteran soldier that you might expect from the Exo Guardians, which are all about, you know military defense of the pact world systems and so i was thinking you know what is this person like what does this person do as a hobby when they're not working and so i i thought i just thought it would be really cute if uh they were a huge fan of this sugar pop band uh you know i'm i'm a fan of j-pop as well and so i thought oh you know i'll i'll put in this little thing to and it'll be cute um and it sort of exploded I, i'm not sure i expected it to explode that way i'm not sure if anyone here expected it to explode that way but it was it was quite a lot of fun it's been quite uh heartening to see everyone's reaction to it um i'm really glad that people enjoyed that little detail yeah except if people don't go on the quest and they don't actually get the album, everyone feels left out. That happened on uh, our show. One of the guys, one of the regulars on our show, he decided he actually was at PaizoCon and he just waited online for an hour to get some dice. And so when he went to go play this and he had to go wait online, he's like, I'm not waiting online. Even if it's even if it's in a role playing game, I'm not waiting online. And now he regrets it. He regrets not getting the <laughs> album like big time. <laughs> Yeah, um, I play tested this with uh, my group back um, before I had joined Paizo, and uh, my brother was the only one who chose to wait in line and also wound up getting trampled by the crowd. Um, and he's been really amused to see every way that other people try to cheat the line. <laughs> he, he once commented to me as like, I guess I was the only person silly enough to actually stand in the line properly. Uh, but <laughs> yeah, it's, it's fun to see how people cheat the line. I especially love it when the people who cheat the line fail so badly that the ones who stood in line get there first. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's very interesting to see how everyone reacts to that. That just like a little tidbit that I tossed in there without thinking too much of it. Yeah, it is amazing how people will latch on to like the smallest thing that you just put in for fun, and then all of a sudden it just, it just blew up to levels that still to this day people like never stop talking about. And I see T-shirts, and I think there's some music some people made, and it's just all over the place. I haven't seen the music. I have seen the t-shirt. I own one. And what about Historia? That actually was my favorite adventure within um, the commencement. I don't know why. It just was sort of, it's sort of odd. Like, it's like, oh, you're on the space station and then you see this house like in the woods 
almost it's like what's this doing on the space station like it's just it's just sort of a very tricky it's a pr- tricky adventure to pull off so historias i was just sort of thinking of uh corporate espionage and that kind of uh well uh the data files are about finding data but historia 7 is also about manipulating it i um you know she's a technomancer and she's also you know very I'm not going to say paranoid because so far she's been proven correct in pretty much everything that she's been investigating. But uh, it's pretty clear that the Scoured Stars incident left its mark on her. And she is very into sort of under under the radar reconnaissance and data manipulation, uh, corporate spying, that sort of thing. So, of course, Shadowrun comes to mind. Um, but I wanted to to sort of have an inf- uh, it, of course I wanted to have the adventure echo all of that, and that's why uh, it's all based around the PCs manipulating records and trying to create a false scenario to throw people off the tail of this hacker they find. But I, I didn't want it to be straightforward completely. Um, I wanted the PCs to go in thinking they knew what the situation was all about, but not really understanding exactly what had happened. And I do like having like these little twists in because we we usually have these adventures and we expect them all to all the villains' plans to be going off without a hitch or all the PC well well we know that PC plans never go off with without a hitch. But uh we sort of assume that villains' plans always do. And in this particular case I just wanted the PCs to encounter a situation that nobody had really wanted or expected and then just sort of have to deal with the cleanup of it. So then finally, we also have Ratazams, the deal maker, and he is the one who leads them through the junk race, which a lot of people have strong feelings about for and against. So what, what did you think about that or like what how people have reacted to the junk race? Uh, I haven't really seen... A lot of the, I haven't really seen actually a lot of the the reactions to it. I've seen a few um, podcasts and let's plays of it, which has always amused me because the the roles don't actually require you to seriously modify the car. As long as you make the role, it doesn't matter what you say you did to the car to actually make it better. So I've seen people wedge tofu into the engines or just uh, shore up the vehicle by stapling flame symbols onto it all over the place, which I've always been amused at. I don't actually know how people reacted to it that much. Yeah, it's just, it's one of these things, I think, I mean, all the positive is that people like it because it's just so different and so goofy. The only negative is that it is sometimes hard. You're already, you know, learning a new system. And then all of a sudden you have to learn, which is Starfinder. And then you have to learn another new system, which is like racing within Starfinder vehicle chases. So it's sort of like, oh, you got to learn something within something you're already learning. Yeah, I tried to simplify the racing rules as much as I could. These are actually very stripped down versions of the vehicle rules. Uh, You don't get to do any fancy maneuvers. Your top speed is basically your speed times 10. Um, There's only three states of racing. You either go your full speed, go your half speed, or crash and don't go anywhere. Yeah, I can see that it might be difficult. I think it may be on the GM for that one to try and keep it moving as fast as possible. And I do know it is a burden on the GM, um, especially if they don't have a lot of time to prepare. So I can understand why some people might be iffy on that. Uh, but I did I did think it was worth it in the end to have that fun little mini game in there because I know I personally enjoyed it and I think other people do too. Definitely a the players that I play tested with enjoyed creeping around, uh, especially the Solarian who would always joke that he's not particularly good at anything because Solarians don't have a lot of skills, but he managed to find uh, pretty much everything to do when talking to other racers uh, to keep him busy while everyone else worked on the car. So yeah, I can. Uh, I think preparation is key there. I can understand if some people get a little bogged down in that. But overall, I, I I generally still enjoy it myself. So that's that's about all I can say on the matter. So what was on the cutting room floor? 
I'm curious to know if there was anything you developed that didn't work out or if there was an adventure you kind of made or was this is just that there must have been something that didn't quite make it. Um, the Wayfinder adventure, some of the bits uh, basically got cut down a lot and put together. Um, originally, a lot of the encounters were in different rooms, but that, that all sort of got combined into the one big encounter at the end. And there was a... Uh, so there's a fight with the data files, but it's not the same fight as uh, the one that I made. Um, the one that I created you could basically have random groups interfering for different reasons, but that was just too much space. Um, I think Thurston was right to cut it and do the more simplified version uh, just because it, it was too much space, too much randomness and too much time. So overall, are you pretty pleased with what came out? And now that it's funny, it's like everyone, everyone plays it. Every single person plays this adventure. So everyone knows who you are no matter what because whether it's it's one of these staple adventures that even if you only play one part of it and only play an hour it seems like everyone i know plays it and they like it well i'm definitely glad that people like it <laughs> that's sort of the point of writing these things um yeah it is it is kind of interesting uh just to to be the first you know one one on starfinder um it'll be interesting to see how that changes as more introductory adventures come out uh, but now, I like as it currently stands, I know that uh, people sort of play it. They sort of have to play it because it's one of the few repeatables scenarios. <laughs> I think I think a few people have mentioned that some people have gotten a little sick of it because they've run it so many times, which I can understand. But I'm definitely glad at the response. I'm glad that people like it. So let's talk about Sugar Star Heart Love. Now, I don't want to talk about this in too much detail since it's tier three to six. So I doubt too many people have played it yet. I presume everyone's played 1-01 or is going to at this point, and it's repeatable anyhow. So how did this come about, This the Star Sugar Heart Love? Like, like when did you guys decide, wow, we have to do an adventure just on this because it has become, it, it's blown up so much Starberry Machine Cake? Uh, that was mostly Thurston Hillman's uh, call. I, I can, uh, he, I think a lot of people here feel that Thurston Hillman has a pretty good uh, sense of how the winds may be blowing when it comes to fan response to things. I think he recognized that the band is had gotten pretty big, and so the literally like the first week I came into the office, he messaged me and said, "Hey, do you want to write a scenario that?" just involving this band and I was like okay sure I mean it, it was the band I came up with so um it's I'm it seemed appropriate for me to write it so how'd you come up with the band members because that's something I always wondered about that was the very first thing I did when I got the adventure was to jump to see who strawberry machine cake is and they are they're very original they have the four members and they they actually use avatars and hollow avatars as stage personas, and they like dance on the drums. Can you talk about how you came up with all of them? Um, it's hard to say, actually. Um, it's It was drawing on a whole lot of inspiration. Some of it was just that whenever I see something that interests me online, like a picture, I will save that picture into a folder that I can reference later. And so... I think one of the pictures I saw was uh, like sort of a Naga that was in a really frilly pink dress. It was very cute uniform. And so when I was thinking of band members, I didn't want that Naga exactly, but I had the little snake-headed girl in the frilly pink dress. For the Vesk bone, some of that was because I had been listening to a lot of baby metal uh, as inspiration for uh, Strawberry Machine Cake, uh, which isn't a sugar pop band. It's, uh, it's something called kawaii metal, um, but it's basically like this very sugary, cute music. And then there's this one blonde Nordic looking guy who screams death metal in the middle of it. It's, it's quite an experience. Um, so I had been 
uh, watching that and thinking I wanted somebody who looked like they could scream death metal in the middle of these very cute peppy numbers. So I put in a vest that had like these skull markings on their face. Uh, somebody that wouldn't look too out of place in a heavy metal band. But of course, the, she needs to match the aesthetics. So she's wearing this very elegant kimono. Um, but her, her kodo has like, you know, black death metal spikes coming all out of over it. And then Mimi Metal and Captain Carmine were both just sort of based on various um, Japanese and Korean bands that I had seen, uh, just sort of thinking about what somebody from that might wear and just sort of coming up with this. Um, Captain Carmine is associated with uh, Visual K, which is this sort of uh, in the 90s and 2000s, it was this very elegant, gothy band style from Japan that uh, sort of spread to Korea and other places. Uh, it's basically what you would get if a bunch of Castlevania cosplayers all decided to form a band. And so that was the inspiration for the lead singer. And then um, Mimi Metal was more of a modern sort of cross between... Japanese uh, fashion and like modern outfits. And then Captain Carmine dances on the drums because I realized I didn't have a percussionist, but I didn't want to add more band members. So that's how that wound up happening. Yeah, well, the art is that, I mean, the art came out great. It's just so much, it's like, you know exactly. It's like, up oh, here we go. This is Strawberry Machine Cake and obviously probably the lead singer. And she's dancing on drums that are floating <laughs> in the air. Yeah, the uh, the artist for that Grary Herb is uh, he does a lot of work for our Starfinder scenarios. Uh, he did the Skittermanders in Skittershot, among other things, and he's really fantastic. Just like every piece we get back from it is just a delight. Uh, I, I if people want to look up his work on like ArtStation or something like that, I'd highly recommend it. So, what are some of the songs that Strawberry Machine Cake has done? Is, are there any official songs? Do you have a list somewhere? <laughs> no, we don't have an official list for songs. Uh, a lot of people have recommendations for music you can play during this adventure, uh, including myself. I, I have it on my Twitter, like some suggestions. Uh, I think you said that some people may have come up with songs for the uh, band. So we don't have anything official yet. But then someone has to get cracking and make something. <laughs> yeah, I know. I know. So are we going to be seeing them again? Is there any future plans for another one? I'm not sure if we'll be seeing them in. My guess would be probably just due to the popularity. Uh, it may be that Thurston doesn't want to do anything with them anytime soon necessarily, just due to the fact that they've had two high-profile adventures with them in it. Uh, so, But I, I think down the road we'll probably see Strawberry Machine Cake again. So finally, let's get to the main event, if you will, Escape from the Prison Moon, book two of Against the Aeon Throne, which is obviously the mini adventure path where it's only three books. And you have you have the kind of the difficult job because it's like the first one's obviously the intro. The last one wraps everything up. The middle middle is usually the meaty one where you actually have to transition and keep the adventure going. So how did you get this? Were you working full-time at Paizo when you got to do this adventure, or were you uh, still freelancing? When did this come about? Uh, I had been accepted to the position at Paizo, but I hadn't yet started. Um, and Jason Keeley asked me if I'd be willing to write an adventure path. Uh, I'd never written an adventure path before, so I was excited to do so. So I accepted, despite the fact that I needed to move during some of the writing time. Uh, so it was a little stressful, but um, it, it really was fun to do. So how did you set this up if you've never did an adventure path before? And he went from, well, a, a, a society adventure, which is pretty small to, well, one of the biggest ones you can do an adventure path adventure. So how did you like, I don't know, set it up or um, prepare to write something of this size and then how you actually went about doing it? Uh, well, it's pretty well outlined. I think uh, Ron was talking to you about how these adventure paths work. Um, so this one came with a pretty clear first, second, third act that uh, made it easy to just work on one section at a time. So it was it was sort of just like working on three society adventures, you know, crammed together. Uh, the fact that you're moving through 
uh, Aslanti space while doing it means that you don't necessarily have to keep in mind too much what the players were doing in the sections before them. So that helped simplify things a lot. And uh, past that, it was just outlining very thoroughly and then expanding that outline into um, encounters for the players to go through. So I'll try to keep the spoiler light, but it's hard for those of you who are going to be playing it. We'll try to keep it as spoiler light as possible. But one thing is you are going to be going through the Aslanti space. And the one thing I encountered or felt when I was reading this, and you even mentioned it, is that they are strangers in a strange land because Aslanti space is so different that they're aliens to everyone else. Like when they show up, people are like, oh, I've never even seen the pack world's races before. If they do, they're incredibly rare and no one speaks their language and all the culture is different and weapons. Like everything is completely different when they show up to the point that you go through great lengths to explain even the way communication works and just even the way the doors work, like nothing works. Everything is off right away. Yeah. Um, so I was I was thinking going through this, uh, the entire theme of this adventure is alienation. Uh, you aren't welcome here. And that's, it's not intentional in some of the places you visit. It's very intentional when you encounter the Islanti. Um, not to get too spoilerly, but they will react completely differently depending on if you look Aslanti or not. Um, they will be much friendlier to you, depending on whether you look Aslanti or not. Um, and when it came to various uh, things on the station, I was it, it was sort of, I'm going to say depressingly easy to take inspiration for that because we, like our culture, also alienates a lot of certain subsections of people, in particular the doors that you mentioned. That was inspired by the sort of viral video that was going around a while back. There were a, there was a group of black teenagers or something, uh, young adults, in a restroom, and they were trying to use the soap dispenser. But whenever they moved their hand under it, it didn't react at all. And instead, they moved like a white paper napkin under it, and that would activate the soap dispenser. Uh, like So apparently, whoever had designed it, designed it to only recognize white skin. And that, that was sort of stuck with me. And that, that was my thought going into this. This place is not designed with you in mind. And it's not intentional, uh, or at least a lot of it isn't intentional. But at the same time, you're not welcome here. This place wasn't built for you. Um, and you're going to run into issues with that. Uh, in fact, we're, we're sort of nice when it comes to this adventure because you can learn Aslanti very quickly. You just put a point into it when you level up. I'm sure there's a lot of linguists who have spent ages learning languages that are just sort of cursing at that. But um, you can communicate with these people a lot easier than, say, an immigrant would in real life. And... Uh, so, so it's just like a, a minor taste of being in this area that was not meant for you and where you uh, were not thought of when anything was made. Yeah, when I read through it, I mean, I'm dating myself, but like back in the old days, you know, back in like the 80s and 90s, if you went to Europe, you know, I very much felt this like, you know, computers and the Internet wasn't prevalent. And even just going somewhere like France or England, even it felt different and let and forget it if you went somewhere like um like japan or something you know it's just like you were truly a stranger in a strange land nothing made any sense it was very very different you know even just getting food was like an ordeal obviously nowadays you go there because everyone is sort of one one with the internet it's a little bit easier but i do remember when i was going overseas i felt kind of like that i was thinking wow this is very much like when I was a kid and we would go somewhere where just nothing, nothing you expected was normal. And even things you thought were normal, like, I don't know, like the bathroom, that worked differently. You're like, come on, the bathroom, really? And even that didn't work the same way as it did in America. And it felt very much like that. Like every single thing that you think of in Starfinder doesn't work the same here. Even commerce was different. Like nothing is the same, which is going to be a lot of fun for the GMs, but it has to be careful between frustrating versus fun for the players. 
Yeah, we we definitely included a note in there that said you can do this to play up the atmosphere, but try not to uh, aggravate your players to the point of distraction with these. Uh, it's it's pretty easy for, I think, players to maybe lose the plot as they're busy kicking malfunctioning machineries. So you should definitely have fun with them, but don't break the atmosphere with the atmosphere, basically. So one thing about this adventure it also is that it's also extremely non-linear in a lot of ways. Like, you just sort of show up and then you're like, okay, you need to, you know, go here and do this, but there's a million ways to do it. This seems like it's a very open adventure. Like you just sort of set up almost a sandbox of this crazy place in Islanti space with all these aliens and other languages and cultures. And then you sort of let them go off. What were your like, yeah, what were you thinking with that? Um, I, I just wanted something more organic. Um, especially with like the third part of the adventure uh, spoilers, there's a prison on a moon. And if you're lucky, you might escape from it. But that part of the adventure was also by necessity, very open ended because everyone was going to have their own ways of approaching it. So I, I wanted that in the same way to, to give a taste of that before the PCs had to do it with their lives on the line. Um, in this, the first place that they visit, uh, sort of to get them in the mindset, but also um, just to avoid the sort of feeling that there's a door and they need a key and to get to the key, they have to go through this specific uh, series of rooms in this specific order. Uh, it's not gonna work like that. This is a more investigative adventure where the PCs can go where they like, uh, talk to who they like, and prepare how they like, most importantly. And how they prepare may end up saving them or sinking them later on, so they need to put a lot of thought into that. Um, but the, the point, I guess, is to sort of warm them up for the final act of this adventure. Yeah, I mentioned this again with my interview with Ron, that the first part of this adventure, it felt very much like you were in World War II, occupied France. And then when I read this adventure, it felt like I was watching The Great Escape because it's like, okay, you know, first you got to figure out where you are and the language isn't the same, the culture is not the same. And then you got to figure out how to go to the prison moon and break people out. And there's no one way to do it. If, you know, it's a lot of planning, a lot of strategizing, and this can go in any way. And it's really going to be on the PCs to get out because this can go bad very quickly. Yeah, this adventure, uh, for better or worse, requires quite a bit of, um, it's going to require initiative from the PCs. To um, There are certain people who will help them by suggesting routes that they can take, uh, but they're, uh, they're not bound by those routes. Um, they're sort of warned, you know, you need to do some of these things like uh i don't think it's a big spoiler that there weren't you need to speak islanti you need to look aslanti if you're going to invade an islanti prison um there's a few other things where they're given guidance on that but otherwise it's up to them and they're not bound by the actions that we offer or suggest in the adventure either uh i think um one thing that wasn't put in is like well maybe you try and smuggle some of your more alien-looking crew members in in crates. Um, you can try and bluff your ways in for that. That's not in the module, but you could still do it. Um, but it's definitely something where the PCs are warned that if they don't have an escape plan going in there, they may not get out. And it's on them to make that escape plan happen. So something else I wanted to mention is that this adventure has six new playable races. might even have more. But you put in really, really alien races in this thing. Did you come up with those or were those uh, created by other people as well as yourself and then added? So I came up with some of them. I wrote the adventure and sent it in and the article describing the races was assigned after I got the, uh, at least the milestone in, I think maybe the entire adventure. Uh, the milestone is where I, uh, uh, like halfway through, I sent in an over, like a, half the adventure so that we could make sure nothing was going off the rails too badly. Um, so some of those were just what was in my adventure. Uh, the Stella Ferris were in my adventure. 
the so those Zar- are uh, those are my favorite ones, by the way. The Stella Farahs. They are bizarre beyond belief. I'm like, what? I don't even know how you would play them. I want to play them, but they have a they only have a speed of five. So I don't know if you could really play them in an adventure. Well, you do you have to use their hydro body, which gives them a better speed. Um Oh, that's their land speed, not in their hydro book. It says, oh, it's a land speed of five and a swim speed of ten. So if they use their their walking in their hydro body, they can go third. Oh, I see. It says here you can do 30. So good, good, good. Because, yeah, I want to play one of those. They're like cuttlefish that live inside, what is it, a body of water? or so? It's awesome. <laughs> I know. I, I, I'm a big fan of cuttlefish. And uh, once when I was visiting the Boston Aquarium on vacation, uh, there was a, a little cuttlefish in one of the exhibits that uh, swam up in front of me and my friend and it was sort of flashing this displaying pattern on its body which is how they communicate um, but obviously I don't speak cuttlefish and nobody that I, I as far as I know no human on the planet speaks cuttlefish so it sort of made me a little wistful that I would never know what it was trying to say to me so I, uh, in honor of that little cuttlefish I put I put the Stella Ferras in this adventure um, I also had the Zarb and the Paralith. Those aren't playable races, but they do show up in the bestiary. Uh, the Screedeeps, uh, Glests, uh, was one of mine. Uh, personally, I myself did not see any use for them when I turned the adventure in, but uh, Jason Keeley decided that they could make a good playable race. And uh, the Gauze Claws, that's... Uh, the, the sort of cat weasel burrowers that live in volcanic lava tubes. Those were mine. Yeah, I like those guys. They also, they're, they're like, yeah, they're, they're weird. They're like foxes with long claws and they're just, they're, they all, they're, they all look kind of cute and freaky at the same time. Yeah, I, I recall one of the editors saying that the Zarb was basically just a larger, angrier fizz gig, uh, which which tickled my fancy. Uh, but yeah, it was it was all sort of like these these very appealing races that at the same time were sort of weird uh, and that you didn't necessarily know how to talk to. Yeah, but the cuttlefish that because not only that they're what, what size they're diminutive they're so tiny you get to play a diminutive no one plays diminutive it's like small sure tiny maybe but diminutive come on who doesn't want to play diminutive cute little creature uh i think that's one of the main strengths of having starfinders rules for player creatures especially since they can be divorced from the uh, alien statistics for it. I know some people do not like that, but I, I really like that because it means we can have these these strange little creatures, these little diminutive creatures, and it doesn't. Uh, well, it might break the game. I haven't seen them played yet, but um, it's allowed by the rules, and so you can have this this tiny little cute thing that's just sort of walking around in its little water mech, and uh, that's a thing you can play. Yeah, well, they're getting, I mean, they're diminutive, but their water mech is medium size. So, as usual, I mean, they end up being a medium sized creature, but I can only imagine if you ever get to an adventure with water that they will get in, come into their own and totally uh, overpower and show their true strength as the diminutive cuttlefish that they are. <laughs> but yes, I love that. That when I saw that, because you have two pieces of artwork in there. And I saw that thing and I was like, oh my God, what is that? I was immediately drawn to it. What else do you have coming up on the horizon? Um, anything else we should be looking out for from you? Um, I've done some back matter entries in the upcoming Tyrant's Grasp and uh, Return of the Rune Lords thing. Everything major has not been announced yet and i will not be talking about oh no that's fine uh but at least you got stuff coming down the pipeline it sounds like that we- yeah i got a, a few stuff coming down the pipeline in the back of these adventure paths um and there's also the uh books that i developed for uh pathfinder first edition companion lines um so those are always worth looking out for so what's your favorite thing to work on would you say Ah, uh, well, it's it's mostly companions and uh, player guys for me. I do like uh, I do like com- 
working on the uh, setting companions more because it's it's just really a deep dive into lore and text and all of the fun stuff that you know for gms and you know fun stuff for me to read um the the player stuff is obviously fun stuff for people to play um but that that's not quite as it's a little it's not really good light reading you can't sit down and look at the uh, base attack bonus on this arch type when you know, it's not really um exciting to read over it's just exciting for people to play and and people have gotten excited at some of the recent stuff that's come out so that's good um, but it's it's probably going to be the campaign setting books any of the ones of those you could talk about that are coming out uh, i think the most recent campaign setting book that's coming up is faiths of galarian um which has a bunch of deities that aren't necessarily well known in um sort of core Avistan area, the inner sea region. Uh, some of these gods are in that region, but they're, they're more restricted to various uh, non-human people. Like uh, there's, there's uh, the elven god of the hunt, and there's Nevi Rombodazzle, which is the deep gnome god of gambling, who is lots of fun, but most people don't necessarily know her on the surface. And there's some far-flung gods from areas outside of the inner sea region where a lot of the adventures aren't set. Um, there's some gods from Tiansha, um, Shizuru, Sukio, and Heifeng. Uh, there's a god from Arcadia um, that was mentioned before in Distant Shores. Um, and a god from Southern Garund. And a lot of those are all very exciting. You get to get out of where we've set a lot of our material and adventures up until now. So it's always fun to move out into different spaces where uh, not as much has been written about it. Um, I'm pretty excited about that one. The cover for it's great as well. Hey, what was about the elven god of gambling? I love gods like that. What what that one? It's the, the elven god of the hunt is in the book and the deep gnome god of gambling. Oh, deep gnome, even better. What's that all about? Just give me a little bit of a spoiler. I love those gambling <laughs> gods. Like those are like the crazy ones. Those are the ones people always like, though the the fun ones that just are about partying. Uh, well, so this is Nevi Rombodazzle. Uh, she's shown up a bit before, but not in a whole lot of detail. Um, it's said that she started out as a surface gnome and wound up as a deep gnome because she screwed up so much that she had so many debts and she needed to run away. Uh, so apparently she, she just sort of hid in you know, the dark lands for a while. And then she is claimed to have gotten, uh, she is uh, claimed to have gotten her divinity by trading it uh, Torag, a really special gem. And nobody's really certain on the details of that trade, but um that's supposedly how she rose to a god. And she, she has a lot of fun quirks to her. Like uh, she doesn't have a divine realm because some people think she lost it in a bet. And uh, her, her priests will sometimes have orphanages where they pick up, you know, people who have had bad luck in life to try and turn their luck around. But the orphans tend to, their education tends to be about uh, all, all sorts of games of chance and not a whole lot else. Uh, so, so some people are, you know, they maybe frown about teaching orphans how to husk, <laughs> how to be hucksters, but uh, she, she's quite a lot of fun. Uh, but she, she, she's not as chaotic as you might think she is because uh, she, she thinks that you know friends are important, and you know her gambling isn't very fun without friends. But at the same time, she'll still probably run away if her responsibilities get her into trouble. But she she's pretty interesting. Yeah, I love any of those those type of gods because also in theory, anything that shows up in Pathfinder could be in Starfinder as well, including these minor gods because it is the same universe. Yeah, it could. And, and in fact, Besmara even got promoted. Um, so it'll, it'll be interesting to see what carries over. That sounds like a one I would like to see in the future. So make notes. If you're writing another Starfinder adventure path, throw in, uh, what's the, what's her name? Her name is awesome. Nevi Rombodazzle. Nevi Rombodazzle. That is a great, who came up with that one? That must have been around a that while. That one though. I don't know, but it's, yeah, it is a great name. Yeah, that, that one's been around, I guess, for a while. It just hasn't been spotlighted before. All right. Well, 
thanks for coming on. Thanks for talking yes. to us. We, we learned a lot. I know a lot of people are going to be very curious all about the commencement and find out after so much has been, especially some of the people I know, as you said, have played this 10, 20, 30 times because they run it at conventions. And so this is by far the number one adventure run. So people now maybe know a little bit more behind it. They'll be able to add it into their adventures. So the 30th first time they run it, they can add that extra oomph because of your backstories. Uh, yeah, thanks for having me on. And I'm I'm glad that people have been enjoying these adventures so far. Yes. Well, people still have to do Escape from the Prison Moon, but I have a feeling just the whole concept of it being so bizarre, if people are going to remember and talk about this one for a while. I have a feeling that people may really love or really hate it, depending on how well they do in the third act, but uh, we'll see. Oh, you know, up it this way. The PCs will like it if they live, and the GM will like it if they all die. So there you go. You, you can't please everyone. Well, there we go. <laughs> all right. Well, thanks a lot, Eleanor. Uh, thank you. Hey, everyone. This is Steve again. So thanks so much, Eleanor, for joining us. That was a lot of fun. I would say definitely check out Escape from the Prison Moon. Even if you don't want to run it, there are six playable classes, and they are awesome. All of them are really weird and really alien. The Stella Ferris, the one she created, is perhaps one of my absolute favorite classes I've ever seen. As we said before, it's basically these cuttlefish that live inside mechs made out of water. So just the images you can see is they're so cool. I definitely want to try one of those. But all these all these creatures are really, really weird and really, really alien. This is kind of what I thought about when I was thinking of Starfinder, and I like that they're embracing the strange. Anyhow, for those of you who like interviews, do continue to listen to Roll for Combat. As I said before, we are trying to get the author of pretty much every single Starfinder adventure path on the show, and we're getting most of the Pathfinder adventure authors as well. So if you like to listen to people from Paizo, then listen to our show. We're going to be getting them all. Also, don't forget, do check out our Dead Sons Adventure Path. Otherwise, thanks for joining us, and I'll talk to you later. See ya. You've been listening to Roll for Combat, a Starfinder actual play podcast. If you have a question or comment for the show, please visit us at rollforcombat.com. Or drop us a line at contact at rollforcombat.com. You can also find us on Twitter, Facebook, Discord, and other social media platforms. listening to Roll for Combat. Until next week, always remember that your mother was a hamster and your father smelt of elderberries. <laughs> <laughs>